Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook, and welcome to another edition of Direct Snap. This is episode eight. This is our Halloween grab bag episode. We took the week off last week, so we have two weeks of analysis, two weeks of information, two weeks of stories and rants that I want to get out in this podcast, which is why we call it the Halloween grab bag. A lot of things went on in the past two weeks that I want to get off my chest. And if you're not familiar with Direct Snap, this is a podcast where we attack or tackle all of the controversial football topics that are out there that many want to either tap dance around or avoid completely. I'm going to say what many don't want to say, but I'm going to bring light to it because it needs to be out there in the public and we have to discuss these these things uh, on this podcast. And this is a, an avenue where we can discuss those controversial topics and not have to worry about the backlash because, again, some people can't handle good or critical or even crucial conversation. But you can hit us up on Twitter or hit me up on Twitter at FBallGamePlan. I'm also on Facebook, Vine, and Instagram under the same tag, football game plan and don't forget to check out and subscribe to our youtube channel we have all of our updated analysis videos and all that good stuff like that at youtube.com slash football game plan and if you miss any one of our podcasts and want to find where you can listen to those things archived go on our website at footballgameplan.com slash podcast and like I said, this is our Halloween grab bag so again we're tackling a bunch of topics and we're going to start in the Buckeye State where we're going to go to Ohio State where JT Barrett got to start this past weekend at quarterback over Cordell Jones at Ohio State. And it caused a firestorm all week long on Twitter because, you know, people were calling for Cordell Jones to be benched. And, you know, some people were saying that JT Barrett is the better quarterback and should be the starter. I get it. People want to see JT Barrett get out there and do what he did last year when he started in place of uh, Braxton Miller. But let's be honest here, and and this is why I brought this up on on a show, on a podcast, what have you, because there are two different types of quarterbacks. Um, so it's not like JT Barrett is quote unquote better than Cordell Jones. I mean, there's two different styles. We know Barrett is more of the runner, and Cordell Jones is more of your classic drop back pocket passer that has some mobility, but he's not the runner or as savvy of a runner as JT Barrett is, or as dangerous of a runner as JT Barrett is. So Barrett is the best runner by far out of the two. Um, but as far as throwing the football, Jones is a lot better. Unfortunately, in Urban Meyer's offense, Barrett is the better fit. So I understand why Barrett got the nod and why he looks quote-unquote better than Jones in this offense. The reason why Cordell Jones looked better last year because of the receiving options he had at his disposal. Those things have changed now. A lot of the guys were gone. Granted, they have one good receiver on the, on the roster right now, but he's not what they had last year, and that's why they were able to have a lot of success throwing a football, um, but no one wants to bring it up. But when you look at JT Barrett, fitting into what Urban Meyer does well, he's the perfect fit. He's a guy that can operate um, – the passing game efficiently enough, which is what he is. He's an efficient passer. He's not a dangerous passer. He's not the most accurate. And people will point to the percentage, but he's not the most accurate passer. The placement is t tends to be off a little bit. Um, but as far as running and the, the illusion fakes that you need to have to make this offense work, he's a perfect fit, which is why. And this is the biggest quietly of this situation that no one is talking about. Urban Meyer 
purposely brought in JT Barrett. That's his guy. That's his recruit. He didn't recruit Cordell Jones. You know, he didn't recruit Braxton Miller. He recruited JT Barrett. That's his quarterback. You know, and so from a what they do well standpoint, yes, JT Barrett will be a better fit in this offense, but that's not to say that he's a better quarterback than Cordell Jones. Is he a better quarterback within this system? Absolutely. Is he a better overall player than Cordell Jones? Probably not. You know, because the quarterback position requires you to pass more often than you run, um, especially if you're talking about the next level. And in that sense, he's not better than Cordell Jones. It's not to say that he's not a, a good football player, different styles, different cups of tea. But when you look at Barrett getting the start, let's not forget that Urban Meyer recruited this young man. That's his guy. You know, he works well within that offense. And that's why what is is what you saw. Um, that's why what you saw last week versus Rutgers looks a lot better than what you've seen from Cordell Jones. And Cordell Jones, to be completely honest, hasn't played bad football. You know, people are saying, oh, he's terrible. He's bad. He should have been benched. He hasn't played bad football, quite honestly, if we're being honest, if we're taking emotion out of it. And you're going to see taking emotion out of it is going to be the theme of this podcast because a lot of things people can't do without emotion. And when you take emotion out of any situation, you're able to make a clear, concise, decisive, fair, balanced decision. Take emotion out of it. I know fans want to see, you know, Barrett score these touchdowns and and think that's the best guy. For this offense, like I said before, absolutely. But take emotion out of it and realize that Cordell Jones hadn't played bad to where he deserves to be benched. And I think the best option for him moving forward, because he's a junior, he's going to graduate. I think getting into the senior bowl would be great because he, in my opinion, would be one of the top senior, quote-unquote, quarterback prospects out there, if we're being honest. If you're trying to project him to the pros, who wouldn't you want out there more than Cordell Jones? I mean, he fits the mold of what the NFL looks for in a pocket passer or the the, the prototype. He's tall. He's big. He has the arm. You know, he has a toughness. He has a situational awareness. People will overlook that and say he struggled because he got benched by JT Barrett. It, it, he, it, he was in a no-win situation, which is why I thought he probably should have left last year. Why? Because he played in the three most crucial games they had on that schedule. He won them all, played well in them, showed a lot of what you wanted to see, and I think he would have gotten drafted at least in the second round based off those three games. And coming back hurts him in a way because not really from an NFL standpoint because I think they don't let the fans influence him. But let's be honest, the NFL hasn't always gotten it right with the draft anyway. Um, it's the reason why Derek Carr and a Teddy Bridgewater don't go before, let's say, a Johnny Manziel or even a Blake Bortles. So they do get it wrong. Um, but Jones is a guy that when he came back, the media – who propped him up. It's the same media that's saying he should be benched. Why? Because the media loves drama. Everyone wants to be TMZ now. Everybody talks about TMZ, but everybody wants to be TMZ. Everybody wants to be no football talk as well. So if we're just looking at it from a, it's almost like the music game. People act as if you can't like two rappers or two singers at the same time. You have to pit one against the other. No, these guys are both good quarterbacks. They're different type of quarterbacks. 
Jones is a good one. He hasn't played poorly. Barrett is the better fit for what they do offensively at Ohio State or what Urban Meyer wants to do. That is not an indictment on the game of Cordell Jones, so don't think that way. And don't let anybody tell you any differently. We're telling you facts. We're telling you truth here on Direct Snap. But a lot of times people just, again, they can't take emotion out of it. Oh, he threw an incomplete pass. They got to put Barrett in. That's an emotional decision. That's, that's too much emotion in your comments. Don't be an emotional guy or girl. Take emotion out of it if you're going to be an analyst. You know, so that's one situation that happened uh, this past week that was, you know, kind of kind of bothered me because I wanted to address it because you can't have a rational discussion on Twitter. You can't have a rational discussion on Facebook. Absolutely not. So I needed to get this point out without response. Now, I can deal with the response post getting this point, this point out, but you can't do it while you're trying to live tweet in and things like that because then people are going to jump in with illogical points. You get sidetracked with that illogical point, and now you're defending something that's, non, you know, that's nonsense because that person is tweeting with emotion. Like the emotion is running through their fingers as they're tweeting different things. So I had to get that out. Staying in the Buckeye State, something else that bothered me this past two weeks, you look at the Browns, Cleveland Browns, and their whole quarterback situation with Josh McCown and Johnny Manziel. I mean, I just can't stress this enough. Josh McCown is not better than Johnny Manziel. Let me say that again for emphasis. Josh McCown is not better than Johnny Manziel. You don't get better by not playing, and he doesn't give you the best chance to win. I want to say since he started the season, he's only won what? or been a part of one win um, this year. So if he's the best chance to win, you know, wouldn't wouldn't they have won more games? They're two and five right now. And the one game they won, which it was an overtime game versus Baltimore. And now everyone uh, wants to say that, oh, I mean, he, he, look at his stats. It, listen, stats do tell a part of the story, but they don't tell a whole story. And statistically, yes, he has played well. 66% completion percentage, nearly 1,700 yards passing, eight touchdowns, only three interceptions, 7.8 yards of attempt. That's that's solid. He has a quarterback rating of 96.1, you know, which is which is fine. However, and I know you can't really count the, the Jets game because he got the start, and so that, that means he gets the loss. But that's not really his fault. I would say he's one and four as a starter as opposed to one and five because Manziel played that game, played the rest of that game. But when you look at Josh McCown, situationally, he's stinking up the place. Case in point, what game was that that they had won? The, the Broncos game, best chance to win. The Raiders game, best chance to win. San Diego statistically he was outstanding they lost best chance to win you know so i it, look at last week against the rams he gives you the best chance to win they only scored six points so what you're doing in a sense is stunting the growth of a guy that you drafted in the first round in johnny manziel who played well in his first start i'm not going to even count the jets game as part of his record why because he was thrust into that he didn't think he was going to play and I know you have to be ready at every beck and call, you know, 
and he played inconsistent. Okay, let's count it. Let's say he's one and one in the starter as a starter. He played inconsistent week one, got better in week two, and they won the game. That's the point I'm trying to make. Josh McCown stunk in week three, got better in week 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 uh week four. They won week five. He played well. Regress week six, regress week seven. How does that person who's 30, what, six or seven years old? How old is Josh McCown? Like 35, 36? 36. How does that person give you the best chance to win and is going to get better as the season progress over a 23-year-old, won the Heisman Trophy, a lot of talent, a lot of athleticism, and, and I'm not saying Josh McCown isn't a, a great athlete because he really is. I know that firsthand. I mean, his Sam Houston State squad beat, our, beat, beat, beat us down at, at Cajun Field my sophomore year. He and Matt Dominguez had a field day against us. So I've seen up close and personal how much of an athlete Josh McCown is. Really good quarterback at that point. If Josh McCown was 23, then you know what? Rod Wood McCown, but he's 36. He doesn't give you the best chance to win. And Manziel doesn't get better by sitting on the bench. Because now what's going to happen, since you've seen more of McCown stinking up the place, you're going to go to Manziel, and that first game he gets to be the starter, which will probably be next week against uh, – who do they play next week? Against Arizona. He's going to struggle. And what people are going to say, well, you see why Manziel is not ready. No, he's not ready because he's now he, – he now hasn't played in what, five weeks? So how can you sit there and say he got better sitting on the bench? If that's the case, sit all rookies on the bench for at least five years. So that way, when they get to their sixth year, you should hit the ground running, be undefeated, right? You see how dumb that logic is? Pound for pound, Manziel gives them the best chance to win because the one thing you can't quantify is that quote-unquote it factor. Josh McCown had that in college. He had that in Arizona. That was a decade ago. He doesn't have it anymore. Why can't people understand that? But you know why? Emotion. Take emotion out of every situation you do, and you'll be able to see things clear as day. Manziel gives the Browns the best chance to win. Now what's going to happen, a team that I think could be very good in Cleveland. I think Cleveland could have, you look at these losses. You know, the Jets game, 31-10, we saw that get out of hand. They beat Tennessee. They lose to Oakland by seven. They lose to San Diego by three. They knock off the Ravens. They lose to Denver in overtime by three. That game was winnable uh, against St. Louis last Sunday. I'm sorry, uh, yesterday. This is not a bad football team. But when you get inconsistent play, and people look at, they tend to look at the box, box score at the end. And so, yes, his numbers will, McConnell's numbers will look great at the end. But there are points in a game where one incompletion probably was a huge play, a turning point in that ball game, or one interception. Yeah, he threw four touchdowns and one pick. But that one pick cost you the game. That's the point we're making. So all the Browns are doing by trying to make a stupid point, you know, is sacrificing their season. And, and this is the problem I, I see because now you're going to try to you, – you're, you're putting – that, that uh, you're planting seeds of terribleness in the minds of the people that's watching. Well, you know, Johnny's not ready. 
because if he was ready, he'd play. No, sometimes you have stubborn coaches that that tend to, to be stubborn, which is why they find themselves out of employment. I mean, you draft a guy high in the first round because you obviously like his talent. You wanted him on your football team. Play him. They tried this nonsense last year with with, with Brian Hoyer. And how did that turn out? Hoyer is now stinking up the place. First, he stunk up the place in Cleveland, and now he's stinking up the place in Houston. But he gave them the best chance to win, too, last year, right? Just like McCown gives them the best chance to win this year, right? The Browns are sitting at 2-5, and five, and now you start to see people, well, you know, maybe now is the time you want to see what you have in Manziel. No, matter of fact, keep Manziel on the bench. Let him keep getting better on the bench. Keep him on the bench. Let McCown keep giving you the best chance to win week in, week out as you go 2-5. and five. So that says by let's take away the game that Manziel won. You're 1-4 because I'm not going to count that first loss against McCown. So let's say you get a win with McCown every five games. So it should be 2-10 and 10 or 3-10 and 10 by the time you guys win another one. So, nah, don't play Manziel because McCown gives, you, gives them the best chance to win and let Manziel continue to get better by learning from someone that he's better than. But people don't see that logic, man. Again, when in life have you ever gotten better at doing something by not doing it? You know, I'm going to get better at building a house by not building a house. I'm going to just watch somebody build a house. I'm going to get better at open heart surgery by watching someone perform open heart surgery. I'm going to get better at cooking by not cooking. Nonsense. Take emotion out of it. Start Manziel. Allow him to help the Browns. Because here's the thing. A young player like Manziel coming out of college, he came out as a red shirt, red shirt sophomore. So, yes, he still had some growing to do. Because nine times out of ten, when you come out of college, you're a finished product. But if you come out of college early, I think you still have that that year or however when you, uh, however, you know, or whenever you come out. So, in his case, he had two years of development left. This would be his red shirt senior year, I believe. So, but the thing about it, you know Manziel is going to get better because he came out early. So why not take your lumps? Why not do the common sense thing and take your lumps with a young guy that's going to get better than two veteran journeyman backups that's going to progressively get worse, and now you find yourself once again with the losing record. The Browns picked Manziel early in the draft because they – Stunk at quarterback. They got rid of Brandon Whedon. You know, last year they spent all of last season telling themselves that Brian Horry is the guy. You know, he gives us the best chance to win because Manziel had issues. I I get how they want to spin that. You know, I guarantee Manziel would have played a lot better given responsibility. You know, going out there and as a starting quarterback, he probably would have taken things seriously. Frustration can have you do a lot of things. And I'm not making excuses for him. I'm just being honest. When you're frustrated and you're pissed, your focus is going to be in the toilet. Because you can't understand, wait a minute, I'm better than the guy that's in front of me. So they ended up starting Hoyer all last season. And now going into 2015, they picked early in the draft once again. So, this is why bad teams stay bad. They continue to do the same silly things. You see a team out west, Oakland, that gets it. This was a bad football team that has gotten better. 
They drafted well. They're playing their young guys. They'll they'll sprinkle in some vets here or there, here and there. But overall, they've gotten better because they've drafted well and they're playing their youth. No one is getting better sitting on the bench. Because you can turn the football team around in one season if you're an NFL franchise. It's easy to do because you have the luxury of going out there and picking the best players that you feel as though are the best players in college football. That's easy. So you can go from worst to first. But if you're consistently being the worst, then that's a you problem. And I think that's what's going on in Cleveland. All right, next in this Halloween grab bag, this is a good one. I, you know, this is like pulling out that candy corn, that pack of candy corn. And I like candy corn, so I don't care about your candy corn takes. The only thing that I can say we universally disagree on or agree on as far as the worst Halloween candy is those two little orange and black motherfuckers that no one eats. So that's the worst Halloween candy. But candy corn, in my opinion, is very good. So this is like pulling out the candy corn of hot takes and candy corn of issues that that went on yesterday. Rich Gannon. And I like Rich Gannon, you know, as a as a football player. You know, he I thought, you know, he was a tremendous athlete, did a lot of great things, played a ton of years. I mean, he played from when he was 22 to 39. But yesterday, his commentary, and this isn't the first time I've noticed this, but his commentary, his analysis and critique of EJ Manuel yesterday was so unprofessional. And he took unnecessary shots at EJ Manuel. And here's the thing. I've done color commentary work. And I will do some more this year. Shameless plug coming up. November 14th, Patriot League Network, CampusInsiders.com. I will be the color commentator for the Georgetown and Fordham game. Check it out. I've also done Georgetown Colgate. Check that game out as well. You know, we did that two weeks ago. So I know what it's like when you see something that's terrible out there. When you see someone that's playing poorly, you don't take it upon yourself. Take the liberty to be like, let me point out how terrible this guy is by saying he's terrible. You either A, don't talk about it. B, talk about it in a general sense. Like, you know, they got to do a better job with their passing game. And, you know, E.G. Man and me, E.J. Manuel has to start hitting some of these passes. I'm not going to say E.J. Manuel is sucking. He can't read a defense. You know, this this is terrible. And you know what's sad? As I left the game Saturday, I was at, uh, where was I? Oh, Monmouth and uh, Coastal Carolina. Great game, by the way. Came down to the last second, last seconds, and Coastal Carolina kicked the game-winning field goal. So as I'm leaving... I'm trying to find a college football game to listen to on the radio. And I just so happened to pick up Buffalo and Ohio. And apparently Ohio's quarterback, uh, last name Vic, was struggling. I think he threw like two pick sixes already or a pick six already and another interception. And he threw another pick six while I was listening to it. Um, and from the sound of it, it, it sounded as if uh, – here's what the Buffalo – uh, I want to say it was their broadcast because they were amped up about the pick and, you know, they knew more in depth uh, about the players for the Bulls team. Um, so I'm guessing, and plus I'm I'm in Jersey, so I'm pretty sure that's the Buffalo feed I was picking up. But their, their uh, color guy on the radio, 
I mean, it seems like he was scrambling for something to say and, and reached back and pulled out every stereotype for black quarterbacks possible. You know, granted, this is his third interception, second pick six. It's like, oh, my God. I mean, but this is what happens when these type of quarterbacks, and at first I, that piqued my ears. I was like, oh, these, you know, these type. Then he tried to clean it up, and I get it. Ohio's a different offense. Like these option quarterbacks, when they when they have to sit back and read defenses as if they don't throw the football at all during practice, as if this guy who's playing quarterback at a college, at a D1 school, a scholarship athlete, has never thrown a football and never had to read coverage before. You know, this is what happens when these type of guys have to stand back there and read a defense. He just had problems reading that coverage. They just really confused him. They just, he couldn't, and, and it was inaccurate. He couldn't read. I'm like, wow. How about you just go to commercial break, you know? Or how about you just say, man, these black quarterbacks are terrible. I would respect you more for just saying that instead of talking in code. So going to what Rich Gannon was talking about yesterday with E.J. Manuel, it just seemed like it was personal. Like, oh, you know, he is, this is terrible. You can't, I mean, it sounded as if he was standing on top of the desk, shouting to the mountaintops, like, this is why these guys, these guys can't play quarterback. Look at him, inaccurate. Stupid. Can't read. Drew's coming out of his mouth. You know, they should have kept Matt Castle, who later on yesterday threw three of the worst interceptions you could find. But that's neither here nor there. And so I just felt as though, like, dude, if you're a color commentator, I don't, and you have the chance to influence how people view the game, you just now poisoned all of the people that is listening to think that E.J. Manuel is terrible. He can't play, which is false. We know this is false. He can't play. Is he a first-round talent? No. Is he a capable quarterback? Absolutely. But you just now poison the minds of people that, you know, can't really think for themselves because some people can really read through the BS and see, like, wow, Rich Gannon going above and beyond the call of duty over here, right? But some people will just listen to what you say Take your professional judgment because they're like, well, he's on TV. So obviously what he's saying is true. I mean, he played in the NFL. He played the position. So what he's saying is true. Not thinking that what he's saying is bullshit and slanted. So, you know, I just like, why would you take that opportunity? This man has family that's listening. You know, as much as we joke and clown on Twitter about guys and, you know, make fun about bad plays or what have you, you have to also remember if you're on TV, people's families are listening. You know, people read everything they that you write about them. People listen to everything you say about them. And 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 that that's the part that was troubling for me because you saw this guy was struggling. And then, you know, how the football guys would have it. Lo and behold, in the second, late in the second quarter to the second half, EJ Manuel played great. Actually, bought them back and took the lead. After Buffalo was down 27-3 because of E.J. Manuel's mistakes in the first quarter and a half. And when E.J. Manuel threw that touchdown pass to take the lead, the, down the sideline, hitting the receiver in stride, like I tweeted out 
Rich Gannon damn near broke his jaw trying to give him a compliment. Why? Because he spent the entire first half talking about how terrible this guy is as a quarterback. How he couldn't read defenses. How he can't throw. How he, you know, what was the line he used? He makes the routine throw complicated. He makes easy throws complicated. I've never heard this type of critique about a white quarterback by and uh, by a color guy, you know, white or black, ever. But it seems like people go above and beyond to critique black quarterbacks in their struggles. But what I find interesting is that, you know, like I said before, this isn't the first time Rich Gannon has been outspoken about certain types of quarterbacks' play. I remember last year Geno Smith caught his wrath, and it wasn't the Buffalo game either. It was just a regular game. It wasn't that game where Geno Smith threw those three picks. I think that was Buffalo. Um, it was just a game where Geno Smith had three or four drops, buyers here, blatant drops, you know, where Rich Gannon took it upon Geno Smith to say, this is a guy that can't get it done. Look at how he's taking too long holding the football. Never mind the fact that guys weren't getting open, but he's holding the football long. I guess he's supposed to, you know, make somebody get off a bump press. Took it upon yeah, this was against the this was a Raiders game. I saw him call two years ago when Terrell Pryor was a quarterback. Matter of fact, one I don't know if it was the Steelers game, but I know Terrell Pryor ended up having having early struggles, but coming back and playing well. And Rich Gannon had problems giving him compliments because he spent the better part of the the game talking about how terrible he is. Uh, these quarterbacks have to play from the pocket. They have to do it this way. And I'm sitting here thinking like, yo. Why is he going above and beyond critiquing these black quarterbacks when the other quarterback on the other side is struggling as well? But no, it's this quarterback that's the problem. This one. These guys. These guys. Them over there. Those quarterbacks over there. Him. Why was the need to go above and beyond? But the irony in the entire situation, which is why it's just fascinating to me, is that Rich Gannon, his career was similar to these guys he's critiquing. Does he forget that he was treated the same way these black quarterbacks are being treated? Let's take you back in case you don't remember. Rich Gannon came out of the University of Delaware as a wing T quarterback. He is a tremendous athlete. They tried to make him a receiver or a running back. Does that sound familiar to you? Sounds like what they try to do to all black quarterbacks that have some athleticism. Try to make him a receiver. Try to make him a running back. He held court, backed up in Minnesota for three years, got his opportunity in 1990, and played well, played good ball. You know, seeing that was his first time starting, he started 12 games, I think. They went five and seven. So, okay, he can throw. He can play. Let's let's see if we can continue to build him with, on, with him and build around him. His first year, he threw 16 touchdowns, 16 picks. Second year as a starter in 91, he started 11 games. Six and five in those 11 games. 12 touchdowns, six picks. He got better. His completion percentage was, was, was up. His rating was up 13 points. Huh. You know what? Let's try it again. Let's go for a third year in a row. He started 12 games. Eight and four in those starts. 12 touchdowns, 13 picks. Five and seven, six and five, eight and four. 
then he was let go. He went to Washington, was only one in three in those starts, let go. Went to Kansas City, 95, he's 30 years old. When will somebody give him a real opportunity to play? You know, Kansas City, he only started the first two years, uh, three games, one and two in those starts, six and one in 96, 31 years old. And he got he got he called fire the last part of that season that gave them confidence to like, OK, maybe we should keep him around. You know, in the next year, he got five stars, six, six stars. He went five and one, seven touchdowns, four picks. 33 years old in 98, went five and five in his starts. And it was like, see, we knew he couldn't be good if we gave him extended starts. They gave him 10 starts. But you knew Rich Gannon had talent. You knew Rich Gannon was a was a tremendous athlete. You know, you knew he was if they gave him time and he didn't have to look over his shoulder with every incompletion, as a full 16 game starter, he can excel. He goes to Oakland in 99. He's 34 years old and got his, he got finally got the opportunity to start a full 16 games. And what happened? He go 8 and 8 and he makes the Pro Bowl. 24 touchdowns, 14 interceptions. Passer rating 86.5. The next year, 2000, all pro, 12 and 4 as a starter. 66 60% completion percentage, 28 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. Rating 92.4. 2001, 10 and 6. You know, 27 touchdowns, 9 interceptions, rating 95.5, was an all-pro in 2002, 11 and 5, 28 touch, 26 touchdowns, 10 picks, rating of 97.3. And we know he went to the Super Bowl in 2002, and he lost to the Bucks. He was 37 years old, man. So he didn't get his opportunity to start 16 games until he was 34 years old. And did that for four years in which he made the Pro Bowl each and every year. Why? Because somebody believed that he could do it as an athlete. Somebody trusted his skill set, and they gave him an opportunity to play. He is just like these quarterbacks he's talking about. He is just like E.J. Manuel. He is just like Terrell Pryor. He's just like Geno Smith. He's just like Vince Young. He's just like Michael Vick. So I don't know why this guy is forgetting where he came from. He should be the one preaching for giving someone an opportunity and not having that quarterback look over his shoulders because that's what causes the inconsistencies. I think that's where I got my frustration from because I'm sitting – and not because he's taking shots. Yes, that's that's one of the big reasons why. But also because, dude, you were the same player. You were the same exact player, man. Somebody believed in you. They gave you an opportunity. That's all you was asking for your entire career from from 87 to 99. No one gave you a fair shot. You got to the Raiders, got your fair shot, and took them to a Super Bowl. You know, you had a four-year run where you were just outstanding because somebody gave you an opportunity. Now, imagine there's guys like Vince Young. There's guys like Geno Smith, Terrell Pryor, E.J. Manuel. That's not getting that opportunity. They constantly have to look over their shoulder, especially when you have guys that are analysts like yourself taking shots, unnecessary shots. It, it's it's mind blowing. That really frustrated me, man, because, again, you you know, you have we see it sometimes where you may put out an article where you're critical of someone and that person's family may come after you. 
you know, so I'm always conscious of that when I'm giving analysis, you know, or, or critiquing someone. It's a sandwich approach, positive, positive, where they can improve and go back to the positive side because you're trying to tell them how they can get better. It's easier to do that than say, oh, so-and-so sucks. Like, that's not helping anyone. But I just found it funny that Rich Gannon is the the guy, the quintessential guy that should be in those guys, those athletic quarterbacks corner for getting an opportunity. I mean, this is a guy that was 76 and 56 as a starter. Winning record in Oakland, winning record in Minnesota when he got the, the opportunity, winning record in Kansas City. Like, come on, man. Don't forget where you came from. You're exactly what you're trying to critique. You're exactly what you're making fun of. And people hang on your every word because you have the platform. When you have the platform to inform, don't deliberately misinform people. Because you're doing everyone a huge disservice. Moving back to college football, i got to address something with these FBS playoffs. The funny part is that when you look at college football at every other level, FCS, Division II, Division III, NAIA, even junior college, they all have playoffs of 20 teams. So it's not like the FBS side of it couldn't figure out how to get a playoff system that works because now you have three teams right now that are playing some really good football, Memphis, Temple, and Houston. The sad part is that they are all in the same conference. Um, so one of these teams will finish undefeated out of the three, although all three are good. And I think, and I'll be at the Temple game this Halloween night versus uh, Notre Dame. And that's going to be an amazing game, amazing atmosphere, sold-out crowd. The last time they sold out a football game was the first game of the season versus Penn State. So this is a great matchup for Temple because if they can win this game, it gives them a leg up. They've already beaten Penn State, and everyone has beaten a quality opponent. Memphis has beaten um, Ole Miss. Houston has beaten Louisville. And so these are three strong teams. But the sad part is one of these guys will go undefeated and probably won't even be in the playoffs because there's this dumb mindset that conference det determines uh, how strong you are as a football program. Ignoring the fact that Temple's defense is probably one of the best in the country. Ignoring the fact that Houston's offense and Memphis's offense is probably one of the best in the country. Ignoring all that. Houston also plays really good defense, you know, but everybody wants to focus on the SEC. Prime example, Ole Miss luckily beat Alabama and jumped from God knows where to number three in the nation. Memphis beats Ole Miss and, and moves from 18 to 17 and a half. Just because, <laughs> just because Memphis plays in the American Athletic Conference which quietly is one of the better conferences this season. They're getting strong play from Navy. They're getting strong play from South, uh, South Florida this year, surprisingly. East Carolina put up a show last week versus Temple. Cincinnati plays some good football as well. So they're, they're pretty strong this year in the AAC. But if the SEC, this is how the game is run in, in college football with these FBS playoffs. Oh, everybody talks about the SEC is tough to go, you know, let Texas A&M knock off a team in the SEC. They, first of all, preseason, they'll put 12 out of the 14 SEC teams in the top 10. 
They'll jam every SEC team in the top 10 and then say, oh, the gauntlet they have to face is tough. We're playing a ranked opponent each and every week. Like, But when they talk about the SEC, they, they, they tend to always leave out Vanderbilt. You know, they'll leave out Vanderbilt conveniently. They'll leave out Kentucky. They just started putting Mississippi State in the conversation last year because they were winning. They'll leave out Arkansas until they start winning. Then they'll talk about Arkansas. You know, but it's, it's hilarious. The SEC right now has one undefeated team, and that's LSU, which I think is the second best team in the country after Ohio State. I would really like to see LSU play Ohio State for the championship game this year. Or LSU and Clemson. To me, those are the three best teams in the country right now. But the media will let you believe that the best team in the country is Alabama, you know, Florida, LSU, and every other SEC team out there. So, for me, it should be a simple resolution. Every conference champion gets an automatic bid in the playoffs. So, that's what, one, two, that's what, 11 maybe, 10 conference champions or 12. So, you get 12 conference champions, automatic bids, 12 at large. There you have it. 24 teams have at it because you can't tell me in a one game situation, Memphis temple or Houston wouldn't win a game or two. Why? Because we've seen it already this season. We saw in a one game situation, Memphis knocked off Ole Miss dominated Ole Miss. We saw in a one game situation, temple dominate Penn state. We've seen in a one game situation, Houston dominate Louisville. Any given Saturday. Conferences don't hold weight. It's individual teams that hold weight. How good you are individually matters, not because your conference is tougher. If that's the case, Vanderbilt would never lose in a non-conference game. And we know that's not the case. Well, they're different. They're different. You can't say that. You know, they're different. You know, that that that's not a team you have to they, – they don't count. They do not count. <laughs> I find it hilarious, man. I, I just wish these teams got an got an equal shot. Because you know how it is. Those that have played college football in the spring, during two days, coach gives you that speech. We got a chance at the title this year, coach. I mean, uh, uh, you know, players, we got a guys we got a chance at the, we want to win the national championship this year. In the FBS, you know damn well that's not the case unless you're playing in the SEC, ACC, or Big Ten. Pac twelve. Or Big 12, sometimes. Because I, I swear, if LSU goes undefeated and Ohio State goes undefeated, and who else? Clemson goes undefeated. I guarantee they'll put a two-loss Alabama team in there before a Big 12 champion and try to squeeze out TCU and Baylor once again, which would be nonsense. These two teams have been blowing people out. But since they don't play in the SEC, since it's not sexy, they don't have their own network, it, it you know, you can't put these guys in the in the playoff. You know, they don't have the gauntlet that Alabama has. They are, they're undefeated. So I think they need the playoffs. There's teams right now that I think would do great in the playoff situation. Navy, Pitt, who has a great game this Thursday night against uh, North Carolina, Duke, Iowa, Marshall, 
Toledo, App State, Boise State, and Bowling Green. I think those teams in a playoff setting, in a one-game situation, would do exceptionally well and, and hold their conferences, you know, banner pretty high by how well they play. You know, so I, I, I don't I don't get it. I, I just hate that bias that comes from, you know, the, the conference when there's clearly teams that pass the eye test. Memphis clearly is a better football team than Ole Miss. Memphis could possibly beat Alabama. We wouldn't know. If Temple was in the SEC, Temple would be Florida. But since they're not, they're Temple. Houston in the SEC would be Georgia. But since they're not, they're Houston. I don't get it, man. Football is not that complicated. Put the best teams out there. You should want the, a true champion. I don't think the FBS will ever have a true champion until they fix the playoff system. Put more teams in. Figure out a way to make it work. The FCS through NAIA makes it work. Figure out a way to make it work and get the best teams in there, and let's put the ball down and go play. Pulling more stuff out this grab bag. This has been a great podcast, by the way. Uh, I, I want to talk about fan misconception because, you know, the reason here's the reason why, and I hate to sound like this, but here's the reason why I don't like going to live games and sitting in the stands. Um, before I started football game plan, I went to one live game. It was the Saints playing the Seahawks. Uh, this was in 2002 or three, I believe. They opened up with the Seahawks. It was the first home game. As a matter of fact, it was 2000. It was either three or four. First home game. Um, Aaron Brooks comes out there to warm up. Fans booing him. All right, all right, maybe they don't like Aaron Brooks. First play of the game, Joe Horn streaking down the field, bracketed by two Seattle Seahawks defenders. Fans sit next to me, Why, throw it to Horn. Why wouldn't a stupid guy throw it to Horn? And me being a, the the recently graduated college football player, telling him, well, you know, they had they had him bracketed. Yeah, but you got to throw it to Horn. Like, you know what? I can't do I can't do live football games no more. I'm out. I left. First quarter, gone. I'll go watch it across the street at a bar. But the reason why I, I you know, so I don't want to sound like a, you know, a, a snobbish punk because that's not what I'm trying to say, but I hate going to live games as a fan because I'm a big fan of football because fans are obnoxious, you know. And it, it you know it's tough for me to, because to, I know why things happen the way they do. And so I tend not to be emotional. And a lot of times people can't take emotion out of it. You know, fan is short for fanatical. I get it. And so you see that a lot when you do, in this business when you're doing analysis and things of that nature, and you may say so-and-so may not be a great fit for this football team. Let's take, for instance, Kirk Cousins. Well, Kirk Cousins may not be the best quarterback on the Redskins roster. Kirk Cousins has a great game. Everyone comes and say, see, look, ha-ha, ha-ha, you, ha-ha, right there, you're wrong. One game, one good or great game doesn't overtake multiple games of evidence. Just because you dunked once doesn't mean you can dunk all the time. People don't understand that simple concept, but they can't take emotion out of it. I find it hilarious how many people are going at Bamani Jones talking about how he's wrong about Kirk Cousins after this game. When realistically, he gave Kirk Cousins props. And he also said that Colt McCoy should be the guy. But people always want to point to this one game, this one performance, and think, ha-ha, you're wrong. 
but the dude overall is 6-11 and 11 as a starter. Multiple game-ending interceptions. He didn't throw one yesterday. He played okay yesterday. He played great down the stretch. Fine. He had a great game. Overall, he's 6-11 and 11 as a starter. But, again, people can't take emotion out of it. One good or great game doesn't erase multiple games of evidence. And the other thing that I don't like about what fans tend to do is that, and I said this earlier on Twitter, fans would have the worst run organizations, teams, you know, draft, everything. Sometimes it may be the coach. Sometimes it may not be the coach. But you can't fire the coach after every game. You can't fire the offensive coordinator after every game. Shit happens. You lose some. You know, over time, then you look at the coach and say, you know what? Maybe he's not getting it done. You saw that happen in Miami. And the new coach comes in, simplifies things, puts the ball in the belly of Lamar Miller. Now Ryan Tannehill is operating off play action. He looked phenomenal yesterday. Dolphins' offense looked explosive. But over the course of, let's say, what, four years? They tried to make Ryan Tannehill Dan Marino, which I said they should not do because he's not that guy. He's an average quarterback at best who can operate well off play action. You have to de-emphasize him like Dallas did with Romo last year. And you saw the last two games. Ryan Tannehill has played efficient, good football, winning football. The running game is taking off. All of a sudden, the offensive line looks better. That's a situation where you can say, you know what? Maybe coaching was a problem. But calling for a coach's job after two games, oh, we need a new coach. Benching a quarterback after he throws an incomplete pass. Oh, we need a new quarterback. Put the backup in. Dallas went out and bypassed the best backup on the roster in Kelly Moore to go get Matt Castle because we've seen great things for Matt Castle win. Oh, well, you know, he went 11-5, you know, Backing up Brady, I mean, you know, Belichick, like, he's not, this was his 73rd start. So we've seen 72 other times where Matt Castle was average at best. So I don't, I, I do not understand. Is sometimes it may be the coach, sometimes it's not. But don't be calling for the coach's job immediately after a loss. Why? Because you're emotional. And then you have emotional fans that are now fanalists. You know, they're, they're, they write about their team, and now they want their coach fired because they're upset. Him mad, boss. Him want the coach fired. Him upset they lost. So as an emotional fanalist, you go out and you write, scathing articles because you're upset your team lost because you can't separate your fandom from being a professional, from being an analyst. So you try to merge the two together and you become a fanalist. Like I've said before, no one would ever know I'm a Saints fan. I can call it either way. No one would ever know I'm a raging Cajun fan. But obviously because I went there. But no one would ever know I'm a Notre Dame fan or a Georgia fan. No one would ever know that because I'm able to separate fandom from the analysts. You have to if people are going to take you seriously. I'm not going to read your article, your 2,000-word article, saying the coach should be fired 
three games into the season of his second year. That's fan bullshit. And then when your favorite team goes on a winning streak, all of a sudden you're going to delete that article and say you never wrote it. Don't be a fanalist. Don't be emo- Where Do I have Carl Thomas here that could play some emotional? Like, don't be emotional. Take emotion out of it. And you'll, you'll, you'll live life a, a lot easier. You won't be stressed about these football games. It's only a football game. Like, people be angry with these, with these articles the day after a game, the day after their team loses. Oh, but let their team win. Miami, you see fanalists all the time. Now, all of a sudden, the Dolphins are a real threat to win the Super Bowl. They won two games. And now, all of a sudden, they're the best team in the AFC. That's fanalism. Don't be a fanalist. Friends, don't let friends be fanalists. And as we wrap up this, this episode eight of Direct Snap, the Halloween grab bag, um, I want to say right off the bat, go to our website, visit footballgameplan.com slash books, and check out both of our newly released books, What Did Football Teach Me and Football A Love Story. I didn't play the commercials in this episode. I forgot, but I'm giving you the, the live on-air read of the commercials right now. These are books that we created that have over 100 interviews of current former players, coaches, analysts, entertainers, people that have played football from the high school level to the professional level, people that have coached at high school, college, pro, guys like Brett Billima, Mike Singletary, Howard Mudd, John Harbaugh, Ed Reed, uh, Ross Tucker, a bunch of guys talking about what they love about the game, what got them involved in the game, what the game taught them, and why they can't leave the game alone. These are great stories, guys, and I would suggest you go and check that out on our website at footballgameplan.com slash books. We worked hard on these, and I say we because it was Gene Clemens, Teron Davenport, Chris James, and Brandon Howard. So go check that out. Great reads, guys. Great inspirational and motivational reads in those two books. Christmas is coming up. You're looking for Halloween gifts, stocking stuffers. Encourage the next person to read because reading is fundamental. And if you can't read, you can't do anything in life. So I think these books for these young kids that don't want to read because they don't think anything is cool. This is something you can, you can uh, put in their hands. And for the adult that's looking for that daily inspiration, figure out, you know, to try to find what your passion is. Check out the reason why Brett Billima coaches football, why he stayed involved in the game. Check out why Mike Singletary decided to go on the path he took, he chose, you know, as a kid. Check out what makes Ed Reed tick. You know, why football is so important to him. You'll find all that in those books, Football Love Story and What Did Football Teach Me. Now, on the back end, again, as we wrap up this conversation, I, I have to talk about how the coverage of Greg Hardy uh, is, is interesting to me. And first, let me say this, because people will hear what they want to hear. So I have to say this emphatically. I, Emory Hunt, do not agree with anything Greg Hardy has done in his personal life dealing with domestic violence. True or untrue, I don't like it. I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying that it's the right thing to do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't worry about it or ignore it. I do not, I, I'm sorry, I, Emory Hunt, do not agree with it. However, the way some people are covering Greg Hardy, you can't, you have to take emotion out of the situation. Now, everyone 
either has directly dealt with domestic violence or knows someone, you know, one degree removed from someone that has dealt with it. And I get it. You cover sports. It's tough to separate, you know, your job from something that 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 you are emotionally attached to. For instance, you know, you may let's say you're a, a, a woman and you have to go interview someone who has who is uh, pro-life or what have you. And you have to go in there and, and you, you may be pro-choice. But you have to interview this guy who has no reason to, to, to tell you what you should be doing with your body. Right. But you have to block all of it out and get this job done, get the interview done. You don't have to like what what his views are. You just have to get these quotes for him for your article. Same thing with Greg Hardy. I don't know why people choose to go and create problems. Because, for instance, as much as I would not go and talk to Raleigh Cooper for what he did, for what he said, and how he feels about black people, i.e. how he feels about me. So if, let's say if someone, if I work for a company and say, hey, we need you to go interview Raleigh Cooper. And I know my job depends on it. Okay, fine. I'm going to go interview Raleigh Cooper. I'm going to separate emotion. I'm going to separate, I want to punch him in his face from me doing my job. You know, I'll go and ask those questions, get, get what I need to get, and get out of there. I'm not going to get bent up about it. I did my job, took emotion out of it, and here I am. I'm not going to seek out Riley Cooper to get a quote because I don't like Riley Cooper because I already know how he feels about me as a person. And I, I, I see some people do this. You know, they purposely go and get angry by seeking out the person that makes them angry to then talk about why they're angry. So if you're going to interview Greg Hardy, you know the type of person he is, you know his background. If you can't separate your emotional attachment to the, the topic from your job, then don't go interview him or don't get upset about it because now everything you write about it is going to be, you know, slanted toward that. You will never see me write anything about Riley Cooper, you know, about an article. If I'm bringing him up in analysis is because it's pertinent to the game plan. And I don't even bring up the fact that he's a racist. I don't bring that up at all. I talk about Riley Cooper, the wide receiver, because I'm separating the two. I can talk about Greg Hardy, the football player, and then I can talk about Greg Hardy, the, the jackass, outside of football. I think some people can't separate that emotional attachment. So now that, I think, deafens your message as a whole. You saw it with Ray Rice. People talked about Ray Rice till they were blue in the face in domestic violence. Separate the two. Take emotion out of it. Now people are saying, man, I, I feel bad because he can't, he can't get in the league. Well, duh. If everything that you read and talked about Ray Rice from on a sports spectrum was about domestic violence, then that's all people see. They don't see the football player no more. They see Ray Rice, the guy that knocked out his girlfriend. But you notice they don't see Riley Cooper, the racist. They see Riley Cooper, the football player, who had a transgression. And all I'm saying is take emotion out of it, separate the two, and you'll be able to, to, to you know, live free you won't be as angry, you know. It's all about taking emotion out of everything. 
again, take yesterday's Greg Hardy situation. Blew up on the football field. I don't know what was going on on the sideline. I wasn't there. I can only take take uh, what those guys that were there on the sideline said. They said that he blew up on a coach. Tried to try to hype them up. He slapped the, the the thing out the coach's hand. Des Bryant tried to calm him down. He blew on he, you know, blew up on on uh, Des Bryant. Okay, it's like Des Bryant said, it's football. Things happen. I wasn't there. I can't comment on it. I'm not going to comment on a video that, that that has no sound. I can only go by what they tell me. Whether I believe it or not, that's a different story. Now in the now in the post-game presser, obviously, if I know this is an emotional guy, they just lost a goddamn football game, the first question I'm not going to ask him is, when you blew up on the side, why would I do that? Because then you're going to get the no comment next question. And after the first or second, no comment, next question, you know what? I don't have nothing else to ask you, dude. I'm gone. I'm not going to sit there and continue to ask this dude a question, and he's giving me these dumbass answers. That's nonsense. That's being insane. And then I'm not going to go after that and write a scathing article that has nothing to do with his play on the field, which is great. But all you're going to write about now is how he has an attitude problem and he didn't learn anything. Now, granted, you know, I'm not here to be technical, but I know he didn't get charged with anything. Or he got charged, but he didn't get convicted of anything. Yes, he may have settled out of court. That speaks to more of the morals of the person who who brought the charges against him and what she's worth, you know. But I'm saying, if I picked up the newspaper today and wanted to find out what did Greg Hardy do in the game, all I'm going to read about is he blew up on the sideline and he beat women. He threw guns on, like, some people got to let it go. Separate, unless you want to be an advocate completely and you don't want to be a sports analyst or a sports reporter or a sports journalist, then go right ahead. Beat that drum. Bring, you know, bring bring it to, to light. Like Peter, you know. But imagine someone being, uh, you know, an activist for, for, um, for Peter by, while also being a sports journalist. And so now you're trying to read about the bears and they're talking about how the bears are extinct and we got to do a better job of saving the bears. You're going to be like, yo, I, I, I get it, but I just want to hear about the Chicago bears, the football team. Like, I get Greg Hardy is a jackass, is a guy that has done some horrible things off the field. On the field, I need to know how he's doing. I need to know how he's helping the Cowboys win. Same with Raleigh Cooper. I know Raleigh Cooper probably has – confederate flag tattoos all over his face you know he just uses makeup that we don't see during the game i get he's a flaming racist but as a wide receiver for the philadelphia eagles i need to know how he plays how he contributes to the offense how can they help him you know how can he help that football team be better that's what my focus is still i don't like him i don't have to interact with him i'm able to separate something that i'm emotionally attached to from my job and therefore you don't see it play out in my analysis or in my videos. And so now when that happens, you're going to see people like say something happens again, say another athlete. And you never see this in football. I mean, you never see this in basketball or baseball or any other sport where I think, I don't know why football just brings out people that can't take, you know, emotion out of it. I don't know why people are so passionate about um, covering football. And by by not covering football, 
And people write more negative articles about football than positive articles. People write more negative stories about players than positive stories about players. I don't know why it is about football. But the thing is, you have to be able to separate something you're emotionally attached to from your job. You know, your job is to report on the game. Greg Hardy played a great game. Now, Greg Hardy off the field is probably a horrible person. I don't know him personally. I can't say for sure, but just reading by what he has been accused of, yes, he's horrible. And again, because people will hear what they want to hear. Even though I, I said the disclaimer earlier, people will say, well, he supports Greg Hardy. That's how stupid people are. Stupid, emotional people will say that. So let me say this again. I, Emory Hunt, don't support what Greg Hardy has done off the field in regards to domestic violence. That's terrible. So I have to say that disclaimer again. I, Emory Hunt, doesn't support Greg Hardy and what he's done off the field in regards to domestic violence. That's horrible. And like I've said before, everyone has dealt with domestic violence either firsthand or is one degree removed from someone that has dealt with domestic violence. It's terrible. And it goes both ways. You know, we don't hear people constantly going as Hope Solo about her domestic violence. We don't hear people constantly going ask uh, Ronda Rousey while she's dating someone who has been accused of beating his former girlfriend or wife. We don't hear people go and constantly ask Brittany Griner about her alleged uh, domestic violence issues. Only in football, man. Why is that? And that's the question I'm going to leave you guys with in this episode, this Halloween grab bag. Again, oh, before I leave, guys, I, Emory Hunt, do not support Greg Hardy off the field for what he has been done or what he has been accused of doing or have done dealing with domestic violence. I have to say that for the fifth time because people will hear what they want to hear and say, again, you guys get it. So with that, enjoy your Halloween. A lot of great college football coming up. And I'll see you guys next week on Direct Snap. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Uh.